Good evening. It's an honor and privilege to stand before you again this evening and bring you God's word. Uh, this evening, we continue to study the Beatitudes. Uh, so far, my four brothers who have gone before me, they have fed our souls from the Beatitudes. We have looked at the first, the second, the third, and the fourth Beatitudes. And uh, this evening, with the help of the Lord, I would like us to look at the fifth Beatitude. So we'll be looking at uh, Matthew 5, verse 7. But we are going to read from verses 1 up to 12 of chapter 5, just for the sake of context. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. The word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All men are like grass, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that, Lord, we can gather around your word, worship you, and hear you speak to us from your word. And Lord, we pray that uh, may you send your Holy Spirit right now, that he should open your word to us and help us. And Lord, we pray that may the meditation of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable before you, our God and Redeemer in Christ Jesus. Amen. A 16th century preacher by the name of Thomas Watson begins his sermon on Matthew 5, verse 7 with this observation, and he says, There was never more need to preach of, the merc of mercifulness than in these unmerciful times in which we live. And then he goes on to cite an example of one of the church fathers by the name of John Chrysostom. And he says that John Chrysostom preached often on the doctrine of the mercifulness. And he says, well, our times need many Christosomes. I think we can all agree this evening that much hasn't changed since the 16th century. Even in our time, we still need to hear more of God's mercy and of the need for merciful people in our world. When we continue to see souls being enslaved to sin, we know that we need God's mercy and more merciful people who can bring the gospel to these souls. When we hear that more than half of the world lives in poverty, we know that we need God's mercy and more merciful people 
can help these people. When researchers tell us that almost one in every five Americans suffer from persistent loneliness, and that loneliness is fast becoming a public health concern, we know that we need God's mercy and more merciful people in our world. And this evening, the Lord Jesus Christ is reminding us of the need for mercy. And he tells us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So this evening, with the help of the Lord, I would like us to reflect on our text under the title, Blessed are the Merciful. And we are going to look at three points. First, the meaning of mercy. Second, the model of mercy. And lastly, the reward of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, the meaning of mercy, the model of mercy, and the reward of mercy. First, the meaning of mercy. Jesus Christ tells us, blessed are the merciful. Now, before we can look at the meaning of mercy, I would like just to highlight what my brothers have already highlighted in their preaching as they have been preaching on these four beatitudes just before this one. The first thing that we have been reminded again and again, that Beatitudes, they are not telling us what we must do to be saved. But rather, the Beatitudes are fruits of a life that has been saved and that has been changed by the grace of God. And secondly, my brothers before me, and again, just to remind us again this evening, the Beatitudes, they build on each other. They are like stairways, beginning from the ground and going up and enabling us to get higher and higher as we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So they, they build on each other. You know, the, the, the Beatitudes are telling us that God's work of grace in us begins by sensing how poor we are in the Spirit. And because we are poor in the Spirit, we begin to mourn for our sin. And as we, as we mourn for our sin, we become meek. And as we get more meek by grace, we begin to hunger more and more and thirst of the righteousness of God. And this leads to being merciful people, and that leads to a pure heart. And then again, that gives the fruit of peacemaking in our world. And when we are persecuted for the sake of Christ, we remain steadfast in Christ by his grace. So we need always to have this in our mind as we look at the Beatitudes. So here Christ tells us that blessed are the merciful. Now, what is mercy? Oh, what is mercifulness? Thomas Watson defines mercy as a melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. A melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others, and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. And Martin Lloyd-Jones defines mercy as a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve suffering. A sense of pity plus a desire to relieve suffering. Now, as you look at these two definitions, you see that one thing that is clear in both of these definitions, that mercy has to do with misery and suffering. We see misery and we see suffering and then we are moved to act. And basing on these two definitions, I'll define mercy as a holy compassion that moves us to relieve others 
or their miseries or sufferings. A holy compassion that moves us to relieve others of their miseries or suffering. Now, you notice I'm emphasizing there it's a holy compassion. It's not just a mere compassion, but a holy one, because as we see here in the context, mercy begins with God's work of mercy in our hearts. God works in us. God works out of his mercy in our hearts, and because God has worked in us the work of his mercy, that mercy then moves us to show mercy to others. Friends, we can only show true mercy if we have received the mercy of God. Just like John reminds us that we love because he first loved us. Similarly, we show mercy because first God has to show us mercy. And then we extend that mercy to others. Mercy can never come from a heart that has not been touched by the mercy of God. Now I know you might be asking, well, there are a number of unbelievers out there. They do recommendable things. They do kind things to others. Is that not mercy? No, according to Jesus, that is not mercy. Because true mercy comes from a heart touched by the mercy of God. Of course, we need to thank God for his common grace, which enables unbelievers to do kind things. And sometimes they can do more kind things than believers. But we need not to be deceived and think that is mercy. Because when God looks down, he doesn't see mercy. And whatever the unbelievers do, they cannot please God because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because their recommendable acts are not done out of faith, they are not able to please God. But also because their kind acts are not done for the glory of God, they are not able to please God. It is only that heart that has been touched by the mercy of God that seeks to do mercy out of faith, but also for the glory of God. So here Jesus Christ is telling us, blessed are the merciful. They have received mercy, and then they are showing it to others. But then again, we need to explain why then do unbelievers do kind things? Well, there are a number of reasons, but one of the reasons that the unbelievers do kind things because it makes them feel good. When they do kind things, they feel good. I remember a friend of mine who is a pastor telling me a story of this man he was witnessing to. This man doesn't even believe in the existence of God. But every two days in a week, he would go to a nursing home and help their people who were in need. And he would volunteer to go and buy groceries and whatever they needed and bring them to the nursing home. And then my friend asked him, then why do you do this? And he was honest and said, it makes me feel gives me a sense of purpose in this life. You know, unbelievers can do kind things because they make them feel good. But also sometimes unbelievers can do kind things because they want to be praised. And that's exactly that the problem that Christ had with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they would go out and give out things to the needy so that they should be seen and be praised. And Christ says that they really brought their trumpet when they helped the needy. 
And Christ turns to his disciples and says, Do not be like them. That's when you give to the need a sound, no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say unto you, they have received their reward. Christ rebukes the Pharisees. And unbelievers, sometimes they can do that because they want to be praised. They are blowing their trumpet, so to speak. And that is not mercy. But so sometimes the unbelievers, they can do acts of kindness out of sense of guilt. They look at their lives and they see they have things in abundance. And they look at that person He's in need, and they feel guilty that they have all these things, so they are moved to give. Not because they have mercy on that person. Just a sense of guilt. And that is not mercy. Mercy comes from a heart of flesh that has been touched by the mercy of God. Now here, Christ does not only tell us the meaning of mercy, and then here in the text also we see the model of mercy. The model of mercy. Now, when you read verse 7, Matthew 7, in the original Greek New Testament, you notice that the word that is used here, merciful, the adjective here, does not appear anywhere else in the New Testament, except in one more place, in Hebrews 2, verse 17. Of course, the, the, the verb form of the word mercy here appears so many times in the New Testament. Many places you find it. But the adjective only, is only found here and in, Hebrew, in Hebrews 2, verse 17, which we read, Therefore he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here again, Hebrews 2, we find that mercifulness is described in connection with Christ, that Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest. And friends, I don't think this is a mere coincidence. I don't think it's just a coincidence that this word merciful appears here and then again appears in reference to Christ. We know that the word of God was written by men as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit made these men to carefully choose their words. And it's no mere coincidence that when Matthew wrote, he used this word, and again the author of Hebrews uses the same word to refer to Jesus Christ. I believe what the Holy Spirit was accomplishing here was that when we read this, we'll be asking ourselves, how does a merciful person look like? The Holy Spirit knew that we'll be asking that question, and the Holy Spirit says, well, if you want to know how a merciful person looks like, look to Jesus Christ. He is the merciful and faithful high priest. He is the merciful and faithful one. And if you want to know what is the model of mercy, look to him. He is a perfect and true model of mercy. And indeed, friends, in Christ we find a true model of mercy. From the beginning of his life to the end of his life here on earth, you see mercy, mercy, mercy. And the life of Christ reveals to us mercy in so many ways. And one way is that the life of Christ reveals mercy. We are going to look at four ways. The first way that the life of Christ 
reveals us mercy is that mercy is concerned with the lost soul. True mercy is concerned for the lost souls. You look at Christ. Why did Christ leave all the glory in heaven to come to be a poor man here on earth? Jesus Christ answers himself in Luke 19 verse 10 and he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Christ came here on earth because we were lost. And he came to seek us and save us. Christ had mercy. Christ looked down here on earth and saw all of us like sheep going astray and each one of us going to his own way. And Christ said, no, I need to go to these lost sheep. And he came here on earth for the lost sheep. Christ looked down on earth and he saw people walking in darkness, not finding their way. And he was moved by mercy to come so that he can be the light of the world. Jesus Christ looked down on earth and saw us dead in our sins, people without hope. And he was moved by mercy to come to us dead people so that we can have life. Friends, this is mercy. This is the chief of mercies, as Watson puts it. And as uh, another preacher put it, mercy for the lost souls is the soul of mercy. And we see it here in the life of Jesus Christ, that mercy moved him to leave all the glory in heaven, to come down, not to a good people, but to a people who had rebelled against him. But he saw us heading to destruction, to eternal condemnation, and he was moved by mercy and came down here on earth. True mercy is concerned with the lost souls. And friends, at the beginning, I pointed out there are so many lost souls in our world today. And if we are truly merciful, our hearts need to go out to these lost souls. We need to desire to reach out to them with the gospel because that's the chief of mercies. And so Christ reveals to us true mercy by his concern for the poor and needy. Christ has concern for the poor and needy. You know, one thing about the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah, one of the things that the prophets said was that the Messiah will have a heart for the poor and the needy. And when Jesus Christ was tempted, after he was tempted and he began his ministry, the first thing that Jesus Christ proclaimed, the first thing, the first sermon of Jesus Christ after being tempted was the sermon that he preached from Isaiah 61. And in a sense, Christ was laying out his manifesto to say, this is the purpose why I have come here on earth. And Christ says in Luke 4, 18, as he's reading from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Christ says, I'm here to bring good news to the poor, to set captives free. Christ is a true model of mercy. And he shows us his concern for the poor and the needy. And again, John the Baptist, you know, he came and he was proclaiming. He knew that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that the prophets wrote about. And he pointed to his fellow Jews, look at him. That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the Messiah. But when John was in prison, he began to have some doubts. And then he sent his disciples, go and ask Jesus if he's really the Messiah. And the disciples went to Jesus Christ and said, John has sent us to ask you if you are really the Messiah or we should wait for another person. Notice the response of Jesus Christ. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Go and tell John that. Christ does not say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He just says, go tell John this. Why? Because they understood. The Messiah came for the poor and needy. He came to preach the good news to the poor. Set captives free. And again, as I've already said, said at the beginning of this sermon, we hear that more than half of the world lives in poverty. And if we have experienced the mercy of God, this should move us to extend mercy to our poor neighbors, to those in need. Charles Spurgeon puts it very well, where God has given a man a new heart and a right spirit, there is great tenderness to all the poor, and especially great love to the poor sinners. True mercy is concerned with the poor and the needy. But also, the life of Christ shows us that true mercy is concerned for the despised and rejected. True mercy is concerned for the despised and rejected. And Christ himself, our Savior, surrounded himself with the poor, with the despised, and the rejected. Beginning from the beginning of his life to the end, you find Christ surrounding himself with the despised and the rejected. And again, this is one of the things why the Pharisees didn't like him. You know, when you read in Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, we read there, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Christ had concern for these despised and rejected. And you see it from the very beginning of his life. Now, children, you remember that two months ago we were celebrating the birth of Christ. Now remember when Christ was born, we were the first people to hear that the Savior is born. You are right, it was the shepherds. The shepherds were one of the first people to hear that Christ is born. And yet the shepherds were despised and rejected people in their time. The shepherds could not testify in the court of law because nobody trusted them. The shepherds were regarded as unclean people. But when the Savior is born, he sends his angels 
to go to these despised and rejected and say, there's good news, the Savior is born for you. And the despised and rejected go and worship the Savior. They surround the Savior. The despised and the rejected. And again, Jesus Christ goes on to surround himself with the despised and the rejected, the tax collectors. And they again, these were despised because by this time the Jews were under the Roman rule and the Jews didn't like the Romans and the tax collectors were representatives of Rome. They would collect taxes from the Jews and give it to the Roman government and the Jews viewed them as traitors. They despised them. And most of the time when you read in the Bible you find the tax collectors, they are just by themselves. They are lonely people. You find Levi in his tax booth. He's, he's there and Christ calls him. Find that, that short man there in the tree and Christ calls him down. See, they were despised people, rejected. But Christ surrounded himself with the tax collectors to the extent that this evening we are gathering, we are reading from Matthew, a book written by a tax collector. Because Christ had mercy on him, he called him and he made him his one, one of his disciples. And the Holy Spirit used this tax collector, the despised, to write the book of Matthew for us. This evening we can read, blessed are the merciful, the man despised and rejected. He says, I have understood the meaning of mercy. I know what mercy means. Because as I write this to you, I myself have experienced true mercy from the Savior himself. Blessed are the merciful. Christ surrounded himself the despised, the rejected. And again, you see Christ surrounding himself with women. Women were so despised in those times. But Christ surrounds himself with women, the Samaritan woman, the woman caught in adultery. You find that woman who came and wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair and anointed the feet of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene, Martha, all these women, Christ surrounds himself with these women the despise of his time. To the extent that when Christ is risen, one of the first people to know that Christ is risen are women. And they go and proclaim the Savior is risen. See, from the beginning of his life, as he's born, they are the despised, the shepherds. And as he's rising, ready to go to heaven, they are the despised, the women, witnessing the power of God as Christ is rising from the dead. Christ the model for true mercy. He surrounds himself with the despised and the rejected. But lastly, Christ models for us true mercy, and that true mercy forgives. True mercy forgives. You see Christ as he is dying on the cross, as they are crucifying him. He looks at these people, he has mercy on them. Even though they are mocking him, even though they are nailing him to the cross, he has mercy on them and he prays, Father, forgive them, for the God of this world has blinded them, and they do not know what they are doing. He forgives. Through mercy, he forgives. But also Christ forgives his own friends, Peter, who denies him three times. Now, of course, Christ knew that Peter would deny him. He had already told Peter about that. For sure, Christ is fully God. 
Pastor, he's full of man. And in the, midst, in the midst of pain and sorrow, as he's suffering, he needs friends. And one of his closest friends says, I do not know him three times. Don't think that Christ was not heard by the denial of Peter. He was heard. He was fully human. And as he sees his own friend denying him, it was hurtful. But when Christ is risen from the dead, one of the people that he meets is Peter. And to show that he has forgiven him, he restores him and says, Go and feed my sheep, Peter. Go and feed my sheep. He forgives him. Friends, true mercy forgives. Oh, how sad it is to hear of Christians who say, well, he's a Christian, but he doesn't talk to his neighbor. He will not forgive his neighbor. Oh, he's a Christian, but he doesn't talk to his parents. He will not forgive his parents. Oh, she's a Christian, but she doesn't talk to her brother. She will not forgive her brother. Oh, friends, it shouldn't be like that. If we have experienced true mercy of Christ, we need to forgive. Oh, it hurts, I know. You say it hurts, and it's hard to forgive for sure. It's hard. Christ gives us grace, and he models for us forgiveness. True mercy forgives. And here in our, in our, in our text, we do not only see the meaning of mercy and the model of mercy, but lastly, the reward of mercy. The reward of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They shall receive mercy. Again, as we have already pointed at the beginning of this sermon, Christ is not teaching us here that show mercy, then you'll be saved. That's not what Christ is saying. But Christ is saying because you have you have received the mercy and you are showing mercy, you receive more mercy from the Lord. And we receive this mercy first in this life. We receive more mercy from Christ. We know for sure all of us need mercy daily. We do not only need mercy at the beginning of our Christian walk, but from the very beginning of our spiritual life to the end, we need mercy and mercy and mercy. Because we sin against God and every time we go to the throne, Lord, I need your mercy. And God grants us his mercy again and again and again. They shall receive mercy because we continually need mercy of God in our lives. So, you know, even in this life, we receive this mercy. God gives this mercy even from other people. Some years ago, when I was back in my country, I went to one part of our country, Malawi. There I was teaching a seminar on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Went there teaching pastors and other church leaders. And during a break, during a break in one of the sessions, this man comes to me. And he says, well, your name sounds familiar. Your last name sounds familiar. Uh, I don't know. Do you know? And then he mentions the name of my grandfather. And I was excited. I'm always excited about my grandfather. I say, yes, I know him. He, 
Where's my grandfather? He said, oh, well, your grandfather was a very kind man. He was uh, a godly man when he was here. So my grandfather was from one tribe, and he used to live in one part of Malawi. But because he was working in the government, he was sent to go to this area, and it was a different tribe. But he was a Christian, and by God's grace, he showed kindness to these people as he served them. And he was, uh, and the people were very grateful to him and his kindness. And they say, well, your, fa- your grandfather showed us kindness. And I want to tell you this. Anytime you can come here, come and stay with us. You see, I never knew about it. But God, by his grace, as he enabled my grandfather to be merciful to these people. As I was there, I also was receiving mercy. God gives us mercy even through other individuals. But more importantly, we shall receive mercy on the last day. Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 25 that on the day of judgment, on the last day, the Son of Man will come down from heaven with all glory and with all angels, and he will sit on his glorious throne. And people from all nations will gather before the throne of the King of Kings. And the King of Kings, like a shepherd, will separate sheep from goats. And all unbelievers will go on his left-hand side. And all believers will go on his right-hand side. And then the King will say to those on his right hand, Come, Inherit the kingdom of your father prepared for you before the foundations of the earth were laid. For I was naked, and you gave me clothes. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. I was in hospital, and you came to see me. I was a stranger, and you received me. And the believer will be surprised to say, Me? When did I see you hungry and give you food? When did I see you without clothes and give you clothes? And the king of kings will respond and say, When you did these to to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Come, my friends, come, enter into the kingdom. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. These people are receiving mercy not because they have done anything special, but because in the first place they received mercy and they extended the same mercy to those in need. And because they extended mercy to those in need, God is giving them even more mercy and say, come and enter into the kingdom. Of your father. Friends, this is the reward of mercy. The reward of mercy is more mercy from God. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown to, to, for his name in serving his saints. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive.
Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you, O Lord, for speaking to us about mercy. Lord, help us to look to the Savior, the merciful and faithful high priest, and learn from him. And Lord, if there are some among us that you have not yet worked in their hearts this work of mercy, we plead with you, Father, this evening, may you work in their hearts. And for the rest of us, O oh Lord, we pray, help us to continually grow in mercy. For you have taught us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We pray this for your own glory, in Jesus' name.